Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of Vice President Barkley, Senator Robert A. Taft, Governor Thomas E. Joy, Herbert Hoover, William Green, Governor Earl Warren, Michael DeSalle, Vladimir Clementis, and more than 40 other men and women in the news in the 12th performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every week at this time. If this resolution should be adopted, it would be taken in every capital of the world as a signal that the United States of America had hauled down its flag. He told me that he knew all of the important people in Washington and was on a first-name basis with many of them. During this conversation, he kept repeating the phrase, that ain't whiskey talking. Price controls? What price controls? You'd never know we had any if you'd paid the prices I just paid. Did Mike DeSalle ever get to Washington? Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real and are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding of the news. Here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. Except for Sunday, when the gavels rested in their boxes and the senators and the witnesses rested and waited for Monday, the Klieg lights were installed. The last seven days belonged to the congressional hearings. Hearings on troops to Europe, the natural royal pastel minks, the wintry owl, and heavy water deep in Carolina. And do senators or generals win wars? The Republicans were through with their Lincoln Day circuits, which started early and ran past Washington's birthday. And the Democrats were rushing the Jackson-Jefferson Day season. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Vice President of the United States. With Vice President Barkley going out to Topeka, Kansas, like a ball player going to early spring training to warm up and see if he still had his stuff. Mr. Chairman, Georgia Neese Clark, ladies and gentlemen, I am deeply grateful to the committee for the invitation that brings me here to participate in this George Washington nonpartisan Democratic meeting. <laughs> I shall try not to emulate the example of some of our opponents who on Lincoln's birthday only a few days ago took occasion to say very little about Lincoln and a lot about us. And the Veep went on to say. One of the greatest tasks that the Democratic Party labors under today is to unify the Republican Party. 
The Republican Party had known more united hours, but it had seldom known a moment when its members were acting with more independence. This week, the key Republicans passed in review as witnesses on the great debate in Washington. And whether it was the Taft-Hoover-Wary wing that was right, or the Dewey-Stassen-Lodge wing, it was obvious that they were all more interested in the issue than they were in each other. Governor Dewey, making his initial appearance at a congressional hearing, was one of the first big-name Republicans to testify. Listen to him now as he tells the Republican Senate leader, Kenneth Wary, that he doesn't approve or even understand the Wary resolution to limit the president's power to send troops to Europe. Wary asks Dewey, Are you opposed to the resolution? Yes. On what grounds? On the ground that the resolution has become a symbol... Oh, a symbol. It has become a symbol of opposition to the sending of troops to Europe. But you did not quarrel with the terms of the resolution. Well, I said I didn't understand it. I read well, I'd four and a half lines. You said you'd studied it. You're one of the great legal brains of the country. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. We want to give you all the tributes we can. I'd like to, I'd like to know where you can take out of that resolution anything that says that we shall not send troops to Europe until Congress deter- uh, unless Congress determines the policy. Where does it tie the hands? And then Governor Dewey told the committee why he was against the resolution. If this resolution should be adopted, it would be taken in every capital of the world, both free and slave, as a signal that the United States of America had hauled down its flag. The other nations of the world would little understand or care to inquire about the political differences which might have caused the adoption of the resolution or the constitutional questions involved. It would be understood to be a formal adoption by the Senate of the United States of the theory that the rest of the world was either indefensible or not worth defending and that we had retreated into Fortress America. Senator Wary, who has cross-examined all of the witnesses and produced a few himself, was also a witness this week. Said he wasn't necessarily against sending troops, just wanted to leave it up to the Congress. Senator Wary went on to say that too many of the witnesses were administration witnesses, and that Generals Bradley and Collins were outmoded strategists, unaware of the age of air power. Our preparedness effort is being strangled by unacquainted, exploded theories of ground war advocates in the Pentagon. General Bradley, General Collins, and others who dominate the preparedness planning in the Pentagon seem to be utterly obvious to the victory, potentialities of air power, if air, uh, potentialities of air power should war come. They seem to be saturated by the idea that war with Russia can be won only by the strategy invoked before the event of the war play. The senator, remembering that he campaigned for Dewey in 1948, and with an eye to sturdier presidential timber for 1952, did not take time to criticize any of General Eisenhower's testimony. But there was even disagreement between Wary and Senator Taft, also appearing as a witness, who said he agreed with Bradley and Collins. I fully agree with General Collins, who told this committee that it was impossible to separate truly military elements from the economic, political, and psychological elements. General Collins said again that this was not a military decision, and the military should not make it. An examination of General Eisenhower's speeches and of the testimony of the administration witnesses before this committee shows clearly that we have no definite commitment from any foreign nation as to the number of troops it will supply to the international army, which now has so many generals. We hear a constant drumming on the importance of upholding European morale, but nobody seems to be concerned about American morale 
which is pretty low now and can be a lot lower. Herbert Hoover, whose November speech opened the great debate, interrupted a Florida vacation to come up to testify. The former president, still opposed to sending any army to Europe, said that Europeans feared war much more than they did communism and might be willing to accept communism rather than fight. Mr. Hoover on Tuesday. Many non-communist persons on the continent have a great dread of racial destruction. They fear that their peoples will be further bled white, that their homes and cities again destroyed, and they would prefer an unopposed Soviet occupation to seeing their homelands again becoming a European battlefield. Another Republican testified in the great debate this week. Although not invited to be a witness by either side, he was ill with the flu and couldn't have made the trip anyhow. California's Governor Earl Warren said that he was against the wary resolution and favored military aid to Europe. From the governor's mansion in Sacramento, Earl Warren on the defense of Europe. I can think of few things that would give Stalin more comfort than to know the United States could not send a division or other unit of its forces to any point of necessity without debating it in Congress and having it there determined. I think the military branch of our government, after the objective has been defined, must be trusted to deploy our troops and use the various arms of the service in the most effective manner. I do not see how we can make those decisions as a matter of political judgment and still have them be realistic decisions. To attempt to do so would, in my opinion, be like tying our right hand behind us and offering to do battle with our left hand alone. Vice President Barkley was jesting when he said the biggest job of the Democrats was to unify the Republican Party. But there was a considerable domestic problem left unattended in his own party. The Truman administration had a new scar on its soft underbelly. Once again, the president's friends had let him down. The RFC, once the pride of the New Deal and the Fair Deal, was now under a cold, hard light. And one of the president's fellow Democrats, Senator Fulbright of Arkansas, had turned on the light. Last week, the nation heard how a former Reconstruction Finance Corporation investigator, E. Merle Young, had offered to push through a big government loan in return for a large personal loan. Mr. Young denied this. The man who accused him was Ross Bohannon, a big oil lawyer from Texas. This week, John B. Skiles told the committee that Bohannon was quite an operator himself, knew all the Washington crowd by their first names. The Skiles' testimony, the Bohannon story, Merle Young's denials, and an accidental explosion of a photographer's flashbulb was a shock, even for the seasoned senators Toby and Fulbright. Listen to that brief testimony now. Witness Skiles, the exploding flashbulb, and the last voice is that of Republican Toby of New Hampshire, never at a loss for a quotation. I met Ross Bohannon at a cocktail party in or around Christmas 1948 in the office of T.M. Rucker, a lifelong friend of mine. Bohannon was introduced to me as a fair deal Democrat, and I gathered in the course of approximately one hour at this party that Mr. Bohannon was, by his own admission, a man of great influence. He told me that he knew all of the important people in Washington and was on a first-name basis with many of them. During this conversation, he kept repeating the phrase, that ain't whiskey talking. This meeting took place a long time ago, and I don't remember all of the details, but I do remember that Bohannon told me he had heard from Rucker that I was a real Democrat 
that I knew some people in Washington. I admitted that I had voted for Truman and Barclay and that I did know a few people in Washington. Bohannon then started telling me about the application he was handling for Texmas loan and about how much merit the application had. He again repeated the statement, that ain't whiskey talking. When did you write that statement? I stayed home from Sunday school uh, a week before yesterday and spent the entire morning typing it out, hunting peck, on an old beat-up Underwood typewriter. Did you have any notes uh, to refresh your memory? Yes, sir, I did. I had voluminous notes, which I have right here. Would you mind uh, giving those notes uh, to our staff for their information? Well, I have no, I, I have no notes. I have no notes. That ain't, that ain't whiskey talking. <laughs> on Tuesday, the spotlight was off Bohannon and back on E. Merle Young, who, according to one witness, bought an $8,500 natural royal pastel mink coat for his wife, a White House secretary. The witness was Louis G. Wheeler of New York's Swank Gunther Jackal Company that sells natural royal pastel minks. The firm had applied for a loan. Will you tell the committee all that you know about the purchase of a fur coat in September by Mr. Young? Shortly prior to September 15th, I got a call from Frank Rosenbaum saying that he was sending in a friend of his, Mr. Merle Young, who wanted to purchase a fur coat. Several days later, Mr. Young came in came in with Mrs. Young and purchased a fur coat. What kind of a fur coat was it? Natural Royal Pastel Mink. Well, is this one of your better fur coats, yes. you said? How much did it cost? $8,540, including the tax. Hmm. Did you give any discount? Yes, sir, 10%. When uh, people are referred to us through... Uh, in this case, it was our attorneys at that time. And Mr. Rosenbaum, your attorney? He was at that time, yes, sir. Did he file an RFC application, yes, an RFC loan? <coughs> For how much? For $175,000. Was it approved? Yes, sir. How much did you pay Mr. Rosenbaum for obtaining that approval? As near as I can call, around uh, just below $5,000, I believe. It is necessary to add that the $175,000 loan, although approved, was never actually made. As the day's hearings neared its end... It appeared obvious that the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which had financed so many of the war industries and which had been a decided asset to the nation, was in dire jeopardy of losing its strength and perhaps even its life. Senator Toby said this. It makes one of us at least feel that what he's felt right along is that the best thing could happen to this country would be the demise of the RFC in total, get rid of it. There's been an abortion and a miscarriage of the intent of the RFC all along the line become a political trading bureau through innuendos and slurs and all, men trying to build themselves up and pull them up their bootstraps and political influence and all in high places, and it's a pretty sordid picture. If the average taxpayer sees it as some of us do up here, he's going to cry out unclean, unclean, and turn thumbs down and give them the coup de grace. That's what they need, my judgment. But all the weird hearings and the dervish debates were not limited to American politicians. England had a rhubarb all its own. Last week... Winston Churchill's oral artillery blasted away at Prime Minister Attlee for agreeing that an American admiral should command the Atlantic Pact fleet. 
Mr. Churchill said, if Ike commanded the land armies, Britain was entitled to the top admiral. Mr. Churchill's son, Randolph, argued the issue with the member from Alden, Tom Dryberg, who defended the labor government position in allowing an American admiral. First, Mr. Churchill. Uh, I am opposed to an American being given this job on the principal grounds that the communications of the Atlantic are vital to Britain's survival. They are a matter of life and death to us. They are not vital or a matter of life and death to the Americans. A British admiral will certainly be in control of our own fleets around our own shores. And I presume, in fact, I'm quite sure, that it was only because of the vital necessity of defending our shores that this appointment was ever agreed to. The point I was trying to deal with was the uh, question of the strengths of the two fleets. Uh, I I fully admit that, uh, that the American fleet is much larger, and it's uh, very sad that our fleet is so small. I'm certainly not getting hot around the collar uh, on the principle of rule Britannia, because uh, (laughs) after six years of socialism, uh, Mother Hubbard has replaced Britannia as the symbol of British sea power. I want first to deal with uh, one or two of the other points that uh, Randolph Churchill has just made. I'm very sorry that he sees fit to, to sneer at the Royal Navy as it is. How have I sneered uh, he, at it? He, he and I, uh, you said you didn't think much of it and so on. I said I didn't think it was large enough. He and I, I never don't, questioned don't, its quality, but its quantity. Don't interrupt now. I will interrupt if you make false accusations against me of sneering at you, an institution which I've been brought up to revere. I know you were brought up to revere it. I still do. Quite rightly, and we all do, but uh, honestly... You and I both saw something of the Royal Navy in the Far East. The Americans want, at this moment, allies, not satellites. But it is the socialists who are turning us into satellites of the Americans by not standing up for our just and legitimate interests. Well, I absolutely disagree. But I want to get... Don't don't interrupt You talk both at once, nobody will hear you. I would like to continue... Any other week, this next news story would have made only the Yale Daily News. This week, it threatened to rekindle the War of 1812. The crack British rowing crew at Oxford University chose its coxswain and captain for 1951. He was George A. Carver, Jr., a graduate of Yale, now studying on a scholarship in England. That certain naval person and even Lord Nelson might never get over it. But the coxswain from New Haven took his new command in his stride. So I now, but the first few days we were out, utter chaos resulted on a couple of occasions. They rather regard me as an odd specimen, but I regard them as interesting specimens too. So we sort of analyze each other and everybody's rather happy about the whole situation. In Korea this week, there was general progress across the wide front. General Bradley had told the Senate that the United States had roughly a quarter of a million men in Korea. And yesterday, more than 160,000 UN troops were attacking. For the first time in the Korean War... MacArthur's command had numerical superiority over the enemy below the 38th parallel. A two-pronged attack was jabbing the enemy defenses south of Seoul. The South Korean foreign minister, Ben Lim, paid tribute to his nation's allies and his own people. The determination of the Korean people has become stronger and more determined. This is one of the great characteristics of the Korean people. They, they are, as you well know, that they are one of the most stubborn races in the world. That's why they call them the Irish of the Orient. They are stubborn. But all the news from Korea was not the kind you shouted about. There were 1,500 casualties this week. 
The total, now more than 50,000. 8,600 dead. And this week, one of those 8,600 started the long boat trip home. On Sunday, near Yoju, on the banks of the Han River, with bared heads and muddy boots, they stood in the puddles of slush and listened to a G.I. choir sing a battlefront funeral service for Major General Bryant Moore of the U.S. Ninth Corps, who died after his helicopter crashed on Saturday. A former commandant of West Point, combat veteran of Guadalcanal in the fight for Cologne, General Moore is the third U.S. general to die in Korea. Here was a man to pit against the mountains and the sea. Here was a man who gave his life to the preservation and perpetuation of those priceless gifts of liberty, freedom, and justice. General Moore was a soldier, a soldier to match the Korean mountains, its rivers in flood today, its seas and its muddy rice paddies. General Moore, as him that may be said today, he has fought a good fight. He has finished his course. He has kept the faith. Amen. Also dead in Korea was the hero of Sutton Ridge, Lieutenant Harry E. Sutton, whose platoon held a vital ridge at the Hungnam evacuation in December, and who got a bullet in his heart on February 3rd. He was a Negro. In Korea, the hint of spring brought only mud and all the weariness that mud always means to a soldier. Like the mud in the hills of Italy in World War II, it was bogging down our trucks and tanks. Here is correspondent John Jefferson, standing beside a bridge at the Han River. I am at the Han River, just north of Shengju. The heavy rains of yesterday that have made the road to the front a mire of mud have washed out a series of bridges and bypasses. And L5 liaison plane going over. It's the only way you can cross this river now to the front at front hat Wanju is to go over in a plane. For the rest of the world, the prospect of spring meant the usual many things to many men. And as the earth stirred, there was a traditional flirtation with the herbs of optimism and the searching of the heavens for the possible return of the doves of peace. Those who bothered to think remembered that for two years the predictors have told us to watch the spring of 1951, that the Soviets might move then, that this was Europe's flashpoint when the Cold War might grow hot. We're about to take you to several capitals of Europe for brief weather reports. Not the meteorologist kind of report, but on the climatic conditions for peace or war, which may determine whether we live or die. First, we take you to Paris and CBS correspondent David Schoenbrunn. You know what I think is going to happen this spring, Ed? The French cabinet will fall, and a farmer in Ecuador will see a flaming, saucer-shaped object whizzing through the skies. Our wives will buy white satin hats for Easter, and we'll sit around grousing about the high cost of living, but there isn't going to be any war this spring. I think the worst we can expect is a continuation of the hit-and-run tactics with which the communists and Russians have been plaguing the world since 1945. Yet we have survived these hot and cold wars so far and have actually gotten stronger in the process. 
I've thought all along that we wouldn't be plunged into war, but until this week I felt almost naked and alone, way out on a limb with only my optimism to keep me warm. Now I find myself in some pretty fine company. That limb is getting crowded. Authoritative reports from Washington and Moscow now speak of a detente, an easing of international tensions. And that's particularly encouraging, for it's in those capitals that the issue of war or peace will be decided. Here in Paris, people are much more worried about inflation than war this spring. They're fairly sure that Russia won't risk a general war in the face of America's atomic superiority. And they're confident now that America won't chase the elusive rainbow of preventive war. So we're looking forward to a peaceful springtime in Paris, and who could ask for more? From Paris to Richard Hotelet in Germany, where collision between East and West is always possible. Here in Germany, Ed, we see no cause for either greater optimism or more pessimism than we've felt for the past six months. This spring promises to bring little more than continued deadlock with no important change in the balance of power. The most urgent question is still, what are the Russians going to do? And that question is now as far from being answered as it ever was. The Soviet army in eastern Germany is as strong as before, perhaps a little better trained and equipped. But for all one can see, it's just as capable of sitting still for another five years as it is of attacking within a week. The communist peace offensive is being whipped up to a new climax with appeals to German patriotism and the promise of unity. The four-power meeting lies just ahead. But you can't tell whether Moscow is now concentrating on political means or is just building up a huge, peaceful alibi in preparation for war. For the rest, it's fairly easy to say what this spring holds in store. The West has lost momentum. The European defense program seems to have bogged down in conferences and indecision. There will be a revision of the German occupation statute any day now but too little and too late to rouse enthusiasm. The bigger project of restoring German sovereignty will hardly begin in the next three months. And the problem of rearming Germany seems once again to have been put on ice. There is something new in the spring air, though. People have learned to live with the prospect of disaster. The future is as murky as ever, but slightly less disturbing. One of the specters of spring is a possible attack on Yugoslavia by Russia or its satellites. Winston Burdett in Italy covers the Yugoslav beat as well. Here is Burdett's estimate of what spring will bring. My own feeling is that Western Europe is going to get through the spring of 1951 without any major outbreak. In saying this, I know that I'm reflecting the mood and opinion of people here in the country where I live and work. There has been a change of mood over here, a change for the better. Various things that have happened in the past two months help account for it. For one thing, Europeans have now stopped just talking about their defense and have gotten down to actual work at it under the high command of General Eisenhower. Then, the fear that haunted Europe just a very short time ago, that the military potential of America might be swallowed up in a bottomless war with China, this fear has been dissipated. Finally, and most important, the United States has decided to remobilize her industrial and military strength. Russia can do nothing to stop this rearmament of the greatest industrial power on Earth. Indeed, a Russian preventive war launched this spring would only accelerate the process. So, if the Russians cannot stop the rearming of America and do not dare to challenge it, 
then they will have to come to terms with it sooner or later. For these reasons, European leaders today are breathing more easily, or I should say, more confidently. I know there's one danger that tends to spoil this generally optimistic picture. The danger of another so-called limited war waged by Russia's rearmed satellites against Yugoslavia. But presumably such a war could happen only if the Russians delude themselves into thinking that it could be finished quickly and that it could be kept limited. If this is so, then the best thing the West can do to keep the peace this spring in Europe is to destroy any illusions the Kremlin may have about another limited war with a firm and unequivocal warning. Here is how the situation looks to correspondent Pepper Martin in Tokyo. Spring in Asia has many faces. When the cherry blossoms bloom in Japan, two American National Guard divisions will arrive to give the conquered Japanese people a feeling of security. In Korea, the second thaw and the early spring rains will freshen the bleak countryside, but the mud will mire motorized United Nations divisions. Indochina's jungles will be ripped by the fierce monsoon rains, virtually ending all military activity. But the hundred-mile-wide straits between Formosa and the China mainland will become calm, ideal for fishing or for invasion. Asia was torn apart by six wars, ranging in size from the massive police action in Korea to the sporadic Hattalahap ambushes in the Philippines. Despite this preoccupation with war, there is infinitely less fear now than two months ago that World War III will suddenly explode in Asia. Korea has a stalemate. The United Nations do not have the manpower to reconquer the country. They could not hold North Korea while Manchuria remains a privileged sanctuary. The Chinese probably could win only if they used massive air power against our ports and over the front. The Reds have been warned. If they intervene decisively by sea or by air, their bases in Manchuria and China will be bombed. Indochina is a stalemate. Chinese intervention could upset the balance. But after the Korea experience, it seems doubtful Peking is ready for another adventure. Formosa is a stalemate. Without Russian aid, the communists probably could not successfully assault the island. Without American logistical support, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek certainly could not invade the mainland. The three critical points in Asia are in uneasy balance. Neither the communist nor the non-communist world can reach a military decision in Korea, Indochina, or Formosa without risking World War III. And there is no evidence that communist China plans any move that would precipitate a world conflict. Now, here is our chief Washington correspondent, Eric Severide, on the war or peace climate as it looks from his observatory on the Potomac. Well, Ed, last June 26th, uh, this reporter was solemnly advising his listeners that the United States probably would not come to the aid of the South Koreans at the very hour of night when the president was radioing MacArthur to do so. And ever since then, I've taken the high moral position that reporters should not predict anything in world affairs. All I can do is report the facts and the judgments of authorities here who have to make predictions and act upon them. Among these men, there is no fear that we can be defeated in Korea this spring, though they think the enemy may have a temporary advantage during the period of thaw and mud. There is some fear of a big-scale Chinese invasion of Indochina. But there is less and less fear of war in Europe this spring or summer. 
If the East were planning to invade the West, there would be unconcealable signs of preparation now, and there are no such signs. American ambassadors and ministers from all over Europe have just finished a series of conferences, and they all agreed that the farther one travels East, the calmer things are. They agreed that in Russia's satellite nations, there are no signs of approaching military moves. Hungary is the only one building air raid shelters, for example, and she appears to be doing that only as part of her general preparedness program in which she is behind her neighbors. All these countries, the American experts agreed, are having a desperately hard time to reconstruct their armies and are badly short of qualified officers. Nowhere, however close to Russia, are the families or the staffs in American embassies becoming nervous or asking to go home. And perhaps the most impressive suggestion of peace for this spring and summer is the fact that Tito of Yugoslavia isn't even asking for American arms, though he badly needs arms. He wants economic help. He wants to produce his own arms later on. He thinks there's time. And if the man sitting on the number one bullseye feels relaxed about the next few months, that seems to Washington authorities a pretty fair argument for a peaceful prospect. As you have heard, there is a mild wind of optimism in many of the world's capitals, including our own. It's been building up for the past two months, this feeling that spring will not mean war, except in Korea. The reasons for this change in the climate of opinion are not quite clear. The balance of power has not altered substantially in two months. The West remains on the defensive. We might do well to remember the estimate of the situation given by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Omar Bradley. In that job, you can't afford to have your judgment influenced by the warming winds of spring. And General Bradley said... Despite the peace talk going around, we are in just as much of an emergency now as we were six months ago. We must not be lulled into any false sense of security. You are listening to Hear It Now, CBS's weekly document for ear based on the week's news. The program continues immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Program 12 on Hear It Now, a full-hour review of the week's news told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who make the news. Once again, here is the editor of Hear It Now, Edward R. Murrow. Eighteen months ago, the United Nations General Assembly listened to a spokesman for Czechoslovakia define the communist view on human rights. He was Vladimir Klementis, then foreign minister of the Czech government. This week, Vladimir Klementis was another victim of charges by his own communist party that he had confessed to treason, that he engaged in a conspiracy to overthrow his government. Klementis is under arrest. The free world has not heard a word from him. But listen to Vladimir Klementis speak on treason and punishment. Legal punishment of high treason and other crimes according to penal law cannot be considered as a violation of human rights. Vladimir Klementis with this view. Legal punishment of high treason and other crimes cannot be considered as a violation of human rights. He maintained that the Soviet and her satellites never violated human rights. We do not know his views today, 18 months later, in a Czechoslovak prison, accused of high treason. 
On a hot day in August 1940, Wendell Wilkie stood in the sun of Rushville, Indiana, and challenged the third-term bid of Franklin D. Roosevelt. And I would also like to debate the question of the assumption by this president in seeking a third term of a greater public confidence than was accorded to our presidential giants, Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, and Woodrow Wilson. In all U.S. history, only one man has been elected for a third term and a fourth. On Tuesday of this week, it became the law of the land that no president could seek a third term. Proceed with the regular order of business. House Joint Resolution Number 17 relative to the amendment of the Constitution of the United States limiting the term of presidents to two terms. The Senator from Monroe, Senator Barnes, moves the House concur in the resolution. Are you ready for the question? The voices you heard came from Nashville, Tennessee, which last week became the 34th state to ratify the 22nd Amendment to the Constitution. Those opposed vote no. Ackman. Blackville. Bowles. When Tennessee passed it last week, only two more were needed. On Monday, Utah became the 35th state. And later on Monday, the state of Nevada voted. The state of Nevada, the 36th state admitted to the Union, became the 36th state to ratify the 22nd Amendment. Like it or not, the fourth-term victory of FDR would stand as an all-time record, insured by those who fought him most. The halls of the United Nations were empty this week, as the peacemakers hoped that a Ridgeway victory might improve their bargaining position. The Good Offices Committee requested that the press not embarrass its work with too much publicity. And another special United Nations Committee, studying the literacy of the nations of the world, came up with some rather surprising statistics on the newspaper habits of the American people. Here is Scotsman Patrick Loftus of the UN reporting on which people read the most daily newspapers. You know that Francis Bacon once said that reading maketh a full man. In that sense, the American man although a leader in so many fields, is less advanced than many European men, if we are to judge by the United Nations Statistical Yearbook. He is sixth in the scale of development as judged by the reading of daily newspapers. The leading country in this respect is the United Kingdom, where there are 60 copies of daily newspapers to every 100 persons, man, woman, and child. Next come Australia and Luxembourg, with 43 and 44 copies to every 100 people, then Norway and Sweden with 42, and the United States with 35 copies. The smallest circulations are found in Eastern Asia. For example, China has only one newspaper for every 100 persons, whereas Afghanistan has only one for every 1,000 persons. The American can console himself, however, with the thought that if he's not reading, he is doing something else. For example, in England, most people travel to work by train and bus, and they therefore purchase both a morning and an evening paper to read on the way. The majority of Americans can't do this because they drive to work. It may sound curious, but we can say that more newspapers will be sold if the shortage of motor cars becomes acute. Whether you read six newspapers a day, as some Americans do, or none, or learned about the day's happenings from the radio or television... 
It was apparent to all that happy harmony did not exist between organized labor and the defense setup. Earlier, Republican Senator Aiken of Vermont had accused big business of running the mobilization show. There's no question about it. Big business in this administration is more in the saddle than it has been in a generation. On the other hand, agriculture and labor have been pretty much left out of top-level representation up to this time. And William Green, president of the AFL, accused Mobilizer Wilson of freezing wages, but not really freezing prices, and he threatened action. Unfortunately, there is overwhelming evidence that the defense program is being dominated by the philosophy of big business. As a result, the public is getting price control in name only, as against wage freezing in fact. That is why the United Labor Policy Committee is calling for a showdown now. On Wednesday, the Policy Committee of the United Labor Movement, representing the AFL, the CIO, and the railway unions, voted to walk out of the wage stabilization setup. George Meany, Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL, spoke for labor. The plain people of this country are being made the victims of a so-called stabilization policy dictated by the big business executives who are running the defense mobilization program. There is no one in the defense setup to protect the interests of the millions of Americans who work for wages and salaries. Labor tried to get a voice in the determination of policy, but our representatives are, were being used merely as window dressing, so they walked out in protest. We asked Eric Johnson, the economic stabilization director, to comment on labor's charges. He said he wanted to think it over. Mobilization Director Charles Wilson was to have issued a statement today, but canceled it. Apparently, administration leaders have decided to keep silent for the time being, hoping that labor opposition will abate. Before the president left for Key West on his vacation, he said he didn't think the whole thing was too serious. Said he had complete confidence in Charles Wilson and Mike DeSalle. But labor has not been so united on anything in a long time, and the bitterness runs deep. Finding a formula to end this domestic argument won't be easy. John Foster Dulles came home from a visit to the Pacific this week. He had tried to find a formula for a peace treaty with Japan. He thinks it can be done this year, and that Russia can be contained in the Pacific. Here is part of Mr. Dulles' report. We should never forget that Stalin long ago laid it down as basic communist strategy, that the road to victory over the West, as he put it, lies through the East. That is still taught in the communist Bible. Militant communism has never abandoned its Far Eastern strategy. As it stands today, Japan, Korea, Okinawa, Formosa, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, and Southeast Asia are what stand between the United States and the vast manpower and natural resources of Northeast Asia, which are already being exploited by the new Russian imperialism. If Japan should succumb to communist aggression, there would then be a combination of Russian, Japanese, and Chinese power in the East that would be dangerously formidable. It is the unqualified judgment of General MacArthur that the Japanese people have won the right to be restored to a position of equality within the society of free nations. And our mission wholly endorses that conclusion. One word dominates much of the news and conversation in this country. Eric Johnston put it this way. 
Inflation is one of the greatest threats that we face in the United States. I think it is just as great a threat as Russia, because I think Russia could lick us if we weaken ourselves by inflation. The common enemy is inflation. Who is leading our fight against high prices? His name is Michael DeSalle. But what do we know about him? General Eisenhower is the man designated by the president to fight communism in Europe for us. And we know almost everything about the general, except his politics. But what do we know about Mike DeSalle, director of the Office of Price Stabilization? We wondered what the average citizen thought about him and the job he's doing. Our reporters in Louisville and Boston went out on the street, asked the first five passers-by if they knew who Michael DeSalle was. On Tremont Street in Boston, we asked, who is Mike DeSalle? I really don't know. Never heard of him. I don't know. Does he sell cars? Oh, let me see. He discovered the Fountain of Youth, didn't he? Ain't he some fat fella down in Washington? Then from Louisville. Can you tell me who is Michael DeSalle? No, sir. He's the price administrator. Well, that I wouldn't know. Price administrator, I believe. I don't believe I know the gentleman or the lady, whichever the sex may be. The box score of our very unscientific poll. In Boston, no identification out of five. In Louisville, two identifications out of five. For the past few days, we've been shadowing Mr. DeSalle, with his permission, with a microphone and recorder. For the remaining minutes of this program, we shall attempt to do a brief self-portrait for ear of Mike DeSalle. He didn't pose for us. We had to catch him on the run. I don't take myself seriously because price stabilizers are always expendable. You can't help but come out of this job all scratched up and bleeding. Mike DeSalle weighs 215 pounds and stands 5 feet 5. And a half, I always add. First I came down here to talk to the president. I've talked to the president's newspaper men standing outside, and they said, well, the president said this job needs a man with guts. Do you think uh, you qualify? And I said, who has a larger one? Three months ago, Mike DeSalle was a reasonably successful politician and the popular, unspectacular mayor of Toledo, Ohio, a city of 300,000 on Lake Erie. I've been in public life long enough to know that last week's crisis is very difficult to remember. Let's forget about it, because these things always happen for the best, and I've always found that I've never lost an election. I've been defeated several times, but each time something better has developed. Mike was right. In 1950, he wanted to run for the Senate in Ohio. Ran in the Democratic primaries against Joe Ferguson, was badly beaten. Ferguson lost to Taft by 400,000 votes last November. Then, the present emergency arose, and the White House went looking for a price stabilizer. It was a tough job to fill. DeSalle doesn't know and doesn't care if he was the sixth or the 41st asked to take the job. I've told a lot of people that, that I have the job because no one else would take it, because evidently no one else wants it. When Mike left Toledo, the Junior Chamber of Commerce wished him Godspeed and gave him a few appropriate gifts. Uh, here is the speech of presentation. After seeing what happened to uh, Henderson, Bowles, and Porter, we thought uh, you'd be able to use the following items that we brought with us. Uh, first of all, we want to give you a box of approximately 5,000 aspirin tablets, uh, and we can tell you this will get you more in the next couple of weeks if you need them. We also have a catcher's mask, some shin guards, a brawl bat, and a chest protector. Now, uh, frankly, Mike, 
uh, we hope you won't need them. We hope you're going to get along wonderfully well. And believe me, we wish you all the luck in the world. Mrs. DeSalle stayed in Toledo with the children. And even after reading the political obituaries of other price control directors of other times, she thought that Mike would come out on top. It is rather ironic that Mike has become the man to whom so many housewives look for the solution of their budget problems. Because when he was here at home in Toledo, he never worried about the budget. That was always my job. And it still is. With five children to care for, I know it. However, I am quite sure that with his foresight and thorough going into of any problem of great magnitude, he will work out a solution of the price problem satisfactory to all. My only regret is that he wasn't appointed sooner before prices got so out of hand. Mike DeSalle has had such a tough time that even the administration's opponents have been kind to him. He has watched the Office of Price Stabilizer, the OPS, grow from a one-room operation with DeSalle and a secretary to a bureau employing over a thousand in Washington and many more in offices across the country. Mike DeSalle looks back on those first two months. Some people say, well, how, does it, how do you do it? Um, well, it's just like the old story about the fellow picked up the calf on the first day. Each day he kept picking it up and finally it was a full-grown cow and he was still being able to lift it. He didn't notice it from day to day. But the weight from day to day has been getting heavier. And although DeSalle says certain commodity prices are beginning to level off, the operation is far from successful. And Mike is constantly in the position of having to face the news conferences with corrections and rollbacks and difficult directives. Gentlemen and... Any of the ladies here? Yeah. This regulation is the one that's been so wildly heralded as the replacement to 580, which was the retail markup regulation of the last OPA. That regulation was issued after... Our Washington correspondent spent an entire day in Mr. DeSalle's office with his tape recorder, listened to some of his visitors and their problems. Among them was Senator O'Mahony... He's interested in DeSalle because he's from Wyoming. He's interested in the controls on wool. Listen. Mike, I, I want to tell you uh, that I want to congratulate you on the progress that's being made down here. I watched the organization of OPA at the beginning of uh, World War II, and I know you're very much more advanced in organization matters than they were then. You've heard me talk to you on the telephone about wool. The whole western part of this country is very deeply interested in wool, raw wool, the production of domestic wool. Uh, I'm sure that all those western uh, growers of wool will be pleased to know that you understand their problem. Well, and we're going tremendously to interested in it, Senator, because as we're reporting two-thirds of our wool. If we could increase our domestic wool production, it would be very helpful to us. Well, the price, of course, is important. Thank you very much. And Mark Marcel, one of Mike's staff, who says he just can't understand one of the new directives. We have a draft. Here. Yeah, yeah. I, they sent me a draft. Uh, mm -hmm. I've gone over and I don't recognize it. You don't? No. I think it looks to me like it's tremendously complicated. I'd like to see it simplified. Now, uh, look, I would like to catch you sometime for... Uh, about an hour, an hour and a half or so to throw some ideas uh, at you, preferably away from the office of telephones. Today is just out of the question. We're issuing that retail regulation. Oh. And another official who says he wants Mike to make a visit to West Virginia. I wish to urge you to come to the Greenbrier Hotel weekend of April 6th. 
7th and 8th, at least for one of those days, the University of Chicago has asked you to come. We're going to have a number of the people from Washington who are in the general uh, coordinated economic stabilization efforts. And in my view, it would give you a chance to learn something without being under the pressure of preparing something or speaking. And Governor Williams of the state of Michigan comes to call. He wants an OPS regional office to be located in his state. Mike, as I pointed out to you in my telegram, we're getting lots of pressure, and I don't want to talk about this in terms of a regional office because titles don't make a bit of difference to us. But the thing that the people in industry there want is a straight line so they don't get all tied up in Cleveland. And the OPS directors from the territories, Hawaii, the Virgin Islands, and so forth, whom DeSalle takes time to greet personally. I wanted to tell you, gentlemen, that uh, we didn't want you to feel like distant, distant cousins, that you're just part of the program, and just as an important part of, of the program as any district director in any state or any uh, city in the United States. This man is from the Virgin Islands. I made arrangements with him this morning to go down there when I have my breakdown. Michelle works a 17-hour day, takes time only for a sandwich at noon, and usually has his dinner sent in. This short, placid man in the rumpled brown suit, waddling his way through the confusion of hectic, busy Washington, is a welcome, almost comforting relief. Nothing seems to ruffle him. He seems to know that he has to keep his sense of humor to keep his sanity. His humor is one of his principal assets. Mike DeSalle to a visitor who asked him about Washington. Well, every place that you go, especially back in Ohio, and I say, how do you like Washington? So I've told him that I like it, uh, but I'm sure that the country couldn't afford two Washingtons. Everybody from office boy to baker calls DeSalle Mike. He likes that. Tells the story of the day he spent with another Michael, King Michael of Romania, who thought all the first name calling was intended for him and felt offended. Well, we're at the Toledo Club. I was sitting next to King Michael, and he was talking about Jeeps. Meantime, fellows were sitting across the table from me, and they'd say, Mike, this, Mike, that. Every time somebody said Mike, he'd look up kind of startled, you know, because his name was Michael, Mike, too. And uh, finally he said, oh, they're, they're calling you Mike. And I said, uh, yes, they are. And he kind of shrugged his shoulders, and I said... Chances are if the people of Romania would have called you, Mike, you might have still been king. OPS Director DeSalle has a constant demand for secretaries, discusses the cause for the shortage with his staff. Girls seem to be our problem. Everybody's complaining about the lack of stenographers. Did you read the article in that Liberty magazine, Don't Let Your Daughter Come to Washington? I think my mother would say, Don't Let Your Son Come to Washington. <laughs> DeSalle is an inveterate cigar smoker. They used to be three for a dime, now cost him eight cents. He talks about the stable price of his cigars. I don't like to repeat, but you, they asked me about it up on the hill one day, some of the reporters after, and I said that the price was very stable on these cigars. In fact, a lot of people thought that's where they came from. It's much too early to tell whether Mike DeSalle will make the grade in the back-breaking task before him. He knows that prices are high, and in some cases still spiraling. He knows from occasional visits back to Toledo that even his fellow townspeople are still skeptical. As one shopper in Toledo, Mrs. Lorraine Brown told us... Price controls? What price controls? You'd never know we had any if you'd paid the prices I just paid. Did Mike DeSalle ever get to Washington? We wondered what other people in Toledo thought about DeSalle and his mission to Washington. The new mayor, Ali Zalusta, 
is certain that his predecessor is in Washington. Has a few things he wants him to keep in mind. Mike, Toledo needs a veterans hospital today more than ever before. Hold the line on airport construction, Mike. Toledo hopes to build one soon, but we can do so only on last year's prices. We Americans complain about prices, make jokes about the failure of controls, and approach the problem almost with an air of helplessness. As every responsible statesman or politician has said, inflation can hurt America as much as communism. Against one, we are resolved and courageous. Against the other, slovenly and indifferent. To Mike DeSalle, this is the problem and challenge of his life, as vital to him as the defense of Europe is to Ike. Most people uh, just forget the fact that we've been in business a short time. A lot of problems in connection with it. We could have started out in the beginning and done a lot of ranting and hollering about what we were going to do and then fall on our faces. I thought that we had a chance or a choice between a short-range public relations program or a long-range economic stability program. And since we're interested in economic stability, we chose long-range and are willing to take the harpoons in the beginning in order to do the job in a sound fashion, I think approaching it soundly and with reason, with logic, that we can eventually achieve stability in prices. After all, that's what, the, that's what we're supposed to do. After I'm finished with this job, I won't be able to be elected dog catcher. In fact, I'll be very happy to retain a majority vote in my own household. Michael Vincent DeSalle, 215 pounds. Five feet five and a half. State representative, assistant law director, city of Toledo. Member of city council, vice mayor, mayor of Toledo. Director of the Office of Price Stabilization, November 30th, 1950, to... You have just heard Program 12 in the new CBS series, Hear It Now a document for ear based on the week's news. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly and a CBS staff, which includes Jesse Zosmer, John Aaron, Joseph Wershber, Edmund Scott, and Irving Gitlin. Portions of the program originated at WTOP, Washington, WIBW, Topeka, Kansas, WRDW Augusta, Georgia, WLAC Nashville, Tennessee, KOLO Reno, KOOL Phoenix, WHAS Louisville, WEEI Boston, KCBS San Francisco, KNX Los Angeles, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and United Nations Radio. Combat recordings were made in Korea by CBS correspondents George Herman, John Jefferson, and Robert P. Martin. Special acknowledgement is made to Jack White of Station WJR, Detroit. Edward R. Morrow can be heard over most of these CBS stations Monday through Friday at 7.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is Olin Tai speaking, and this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.